Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Renit Malka, and today I'm joined by Dr. Paul Bryson to talk about spasmodic dysphonia. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Bryson. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'll start off by noting that while we'll touch on other dystonias in this discussion, we'll be focusing on spasmodic dysphonia specifically for this episode. We'd recommend having listened to our separate episode on other neurologic disorders of the larynx as well. So starting off with presentation, what is spasmodic dysphonia and how would a typical SD patient present? Yeah, well, um, you know, typically, you know, I, I think about it, there's there's a couple types and the most common type is the adductor or AD type. And then there's the other type, which is the AB ductor. And, you know, when we think about uh, laryngeal dystonias, so much of it is uh, done with the ear and simply starting with your open-ended question with the patient about why they're coming to see you today uh, can be pretty revealing. And and as you, as you get into the listening of the voice, it the voice will sometimes be reported by the patient as is tight and strangled, um, uh, fatiguing, um, and uh, specifically with the dystonias, it can be somewhat task specific, uh, which is uh, you know kind of different, right? Um, you know, if you if you ask the patient, you know, what does their laugh sound like, or can they sing, or um, I've even had some patients that, that speak another language. Uh, sometimes those tasks will make the voice sound smoother and um, have a, you know, a more, you know, normal type of sound. Mm. But um, where you'll see it, you'll see it in connected speech. Um, so, you know, telephone use for the patient is often difficult or, or talking with friends and family. Um, it can be worse uh, with stress. And, um, you know, they may say that some things make it better. There, there is a sub- uh, group of patients that alcohol um, makes it a little uh, smoother or, or masks it. And, um, you know, oftentimes with the history and the onset, it can be um, somewhat random. I mean, the patient may anchor the onset of symptoms to a particular event, but um, and there, it's not always, um, you know, there's not always something that meaningful meaningfully causes it. So, you may even hear people say, well, it just happened over, you know, a week and, and now my voice sounds like this. And how common is SD? Are there other patient factors or comorbidities we should be aware of for these patients? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's not that common, but, you know, I think, you know, when you're in the medical center, like, like most of us are, um, you, you will see these patients and, you know, and the reported prevalence is about one in a hundred thousand. Um, it's uh, mostly a, a female population, about 65%. Um, the average age of onset is in, you know, 45 years. However, I certainly have patients in their 20s in my practice. And um, uh, what you may find, you'll hear this term of muscle tension dysphonia, or MTD. And um, it's hard to know, you know, what comes first. Is, is the muscle tension really a, a compensation for the patient to try to get their voice out or, or is there truly muscle tension dysphonia with the, with the uh, dystonia? And then, you know, secondly, uh, vocal tremor is something that I see a lot in my practice and tremor can co-mingle with uh, laryngeal dystonia and, you know, a fair amount, you know, 30 to 60%. And, and what I would, what I would also uh, 
kind of share is that while the average age is 45 years, you will have patients that might be referred to you with a, you know, a diagnosis of spasmodic dysphonia, but who really have tremor or who maybe have um, some flavors of uh, spasmodic dysphonia or laryngeal dystonia, but, but really tremor. And, and we can, we can get into some of those differences as we go along, but um, about 10% of laryngeal dystonias have a family history of dystonia. Um, about um, just under 20% of laryngeal dystonia patients have uh, other dystonias affecting other parts of the body. I think about writer's cramp or blepharospasm um, and, um, you know, some other things you might see in the textbook um, it might be a prior measles or mumps infection or extensive voice use or sinus disease. But, you know, just clinically, I can't say that uh, those two little pearls have, uh, you know, I haven't really found that uh, per se in my patient uh, population. And we've gotten into this a little bit already, but how do we break down the subtypes of spasmodic dysphonia? Yeah, you think about it as like breathy or, you know, are they tight or are they breathy? And uh, adductor is the more common type, and, and that's going to be the strained and strangled type. And we're thinking of like the adductor compartment being the dysfunctional compartment here. And that's the thyroid muscle or the lateral muscle. muscle. Um, and, you know, you'll hear of the strangled quality on vowel sounds, uh, particularly with E. So, you know, there are some provocative phrases and tasks, and, and that's going to include, um, you know, counting from 80 to 89. Um, you know, uh, one of the uh, Cape V sentences of we eat eggs every Easter. So it may even sound like we eat eggs every Easter. It's that onset with the E that will sound, you know, sort of characteristic and tight. And, um, you know, is as as another nice reference point for the listener um, the, um, what used to be called the spasmodic, spasmodic dysphonia association is now called, uh, dysphonia international and dysphonia.org is a great site. It's a patient focused site, but it does have some voice samples on it. Um, and, uh, you know, if the listener is interested in hearing some of those voice samples, uh, you know, probably better than the one I just provided. Um, I usually recommend that website to both patients and, uh, to some of our trainees. And how about with abductor spasmodic dysphonia? How do those patients typically present? Yeah. You know, if you think about it, it's like the opposite. So they will still have, um, you know, provocative phrases, but they're breathier. And it's, uh, they're the voiceless consonants. So think H and S. And uh, in those patients, the voice will be quieter and it'll have a breathy break. You know, so with, you know, the phrases there are going to be like counting from 60 to 69 Harry has a happy hat. Um, you know, the other thing is, you know, a lot of times we'll have patients say E and hold out an E in the laryngology clinic. So if they do that with a he, you will oftentimes bring out the spasm. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the less common type. You know, um, people will say this is in the, you know, probably the 10 to 15% range. Um, but, but that's how they uh, will present. And um, those patients will sometimes have you know, strain and effort in a different way. You know, they'll be breathy, but they'll be working really hard to get phrases out because, um, you know, their um, ability to maintain their airflow is reduced. So they, they're the, they're the patient that will run out of breath when they're trying to, you know, speak in a sentence. Um, 
you know, I, I wanted to also just add another little wrinkle, you know, we, we had kind of talked about some even more atypical types of laryngeal dystonias. And that's, you know, the, like the adductor or the breathing dystonia or, um, you know, respiratory dystonia, people will, will call it. Um, and that's, I see that more, you know, in the setting of some of these other, uh, segment, multiple segment dystonias like Meigs syndrome and things like that. So thankfully those are very rare, but that's where you'll see, um, you know, what used to be called paradoxical vocal cord motion, but I kind of, and now it's called, uh, you know, inducible laryngeal obstruction, but, um, but in the neuro sense, these patients will have that sort of respiratory uh, laryngeal dystonia really uh, at rest while they're awake. You'll see the cords moving during breathing um, and moving in an inappropriate way. And, and that's a very challenging uh, dystonia uh, to treat. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I wanted to just wanted to, to add on that one. Yeah, thank you. Um, in terms of etiology, is there a proposed etiology for spasmodic dysphonia? Yeah, I, you know, it still remains unresolved. Um, we think it's centrally based. Um, you know, it's associated with, uh, there is an association that's been reported with familial or other dystonias, and, and that would be in the central nervous system. Um, you know, there um, are reports of you know, earlier we talked about acute onset of the, the condition and, um, you know, some people, uh, particularly in the neurologic space might, um, describe some sort of life stressor, um, you know, having something to do with neuroplasticity or hypersensitization, but, but even that is, you know, it, it's hard to test that. And, you know, the same goes with some of the proposed mechanisms, uh, you know, a thought, a thought of reduced cortical inhibition, know, maybe along the GABA pathways, um, perhaps some uh, increased or disorganized activity of the cerebellum and thalamus and in that area. Um, uh, but we're still, I mean, honestly, there's, there's quite a bit of open space on the uh, pathophysiology of this. And what other pathologies should we be including on our differential when seeing a patient with spasmodic dysphonia? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is, a, again, where listening and observing are key. When we think about um, other movement disorders that we might see, you know, Meig syndrome comes to mind, and, and that's going to affect different, you know, uh, segments. So it's dystonia in different areas. Um, you know, oromandibular dystonia, again, you know, with, when you're talking to the patient, you may see jaw movement. You may um, ask them about how are things when they chew, how are... You know, there's other provocative things that would be involved other than the voice. Um, you know, if it's a respiratory laryngeal dystonia, they're going to report and complain of shortness of breath and breathing issues. With uh, vocal tremor, I try to put it into the context of the, of the patient and the history. You know, if I have an older adult, um, I might notice a head tremor. I might notice a hand tremor. I will ask uh, the patient about What's it like when you take a drink from a cup? How do you handle utensils? Things like that. And, and when you see those other movement disorders, you have to at least think, well, maybe maybe there's some vocal tremor here too, and maybe this, this isn't a pure laryngeal dystonia. Um, another thing that's on the list, which is it's not always clear, you know, there is a, um, 
some crossover with muscle tension dysphonia and adductor spasmodic dysphonia. And what, what you'll hear at some of the meetings or some of my colleagues will talk about like this very constricted and strangled type of uh, adductor spasmodic dysphonia. And um, it's hard to unravel with muscle tension dysphonia. And so these are the patients where they might work intensively over a short period of time with the speech language pathologist to see if you can refine your differential or see if they can have some carryover or benefit with voicing. And, and those are the patients when they don't respond that you may just empirically consider them in the adductor type of spasmodic dysphonia for uh, treatment. And in addition to a regular thorough history, what other historical factors should we be specifically eliciting in these patients? Well, um, you know, like I said earlier, having an open-ended question and listening to them before you get into the tasks is helpful. So, um, you know, I, I think for the laryngeal dystonias, you know, being able to have them do some other tasks and have the sounds clear up is helpful, right? That's it, helpful to make the diagnosis. Um, um, asking them about some alleviating factors like alcohol is sometimes helpful. You know, talking about the differential diagnosis, you know, you you want to make sure that that they don't have dysarthria or like a dysphagia complaint. I, I see those as separate and those sometimes take me down another pathway along, you know, the neurolaryngology or upper motor neuron um, pathway. So if, if those are present, I'm, I'm not always thinking of laryngeal dystonia. You know, as an aside, we might encounter patients that have uh, suffered or are recovering from traumatic brain injury or closed head injury and have some spasticity. And, and that type of spasticity that might affect the upper extremities, you can have spasticity in the larynx and have it not be laryngeal dystonia. But um, you might hear strain in all tasks or it might be associated with some dysarthria. So you, you have to put it into the context um, of, of the patient's presentation. I would, I would say your typical patient with laryngeal dystonia is, is usually otherwise healthy and they, they are just kind of showing up for their voice complaint and they may or may not have, you know, a whole list of comorbidities and other things. Again, you know, with the average age being 45, there are, um, you know, patients tend to be, you know, not, not too, too unhealthy. And what specific features should we be looking out for or noting on physical exam? Yeah. I mean, honestly, talking and listening, I think, are the keys. Really being able to listen um, and hear and, and providing them, having them do the tasks, you know, having them do the sentences, having them do the counting, the singing. Some people will do a shout. Um, I, I think that the, um, you know, the, the listening and the perceptual evaluation is really critical. Um, you know, the prolonged vowel sound, you know, that should help you distinguish uh, tremor, right? A tremor is going to be present in almost all of your vocal tasks. Whereas with uh, laryngeal dystonia, you're going to have some specificity to the task. So the prolonged sound um, and those other things, tremor will kind of be pervasive whereas uh, spasmodic dysphonia or laryngeal dystonia may not be. And then, you know, using your 
uh, laryngoscopy and stroboscopy, I see it as more confirmatory. I kind of have something in my mind uh, when we when we pass the scope and perform the stroboscopy. Um, it is helpful, I think, sometimes, you know, particularly on the AB ductors. Um, you can sometimes see the abductory spasm with specific tasks. I see the laryngoscopy and stroboscopy as supporting my um, differential that I've made just from listening and having a patient run through a, a battery of tests like we talked about. Um, shouting, singing, increasing in pitch, a prolonged vowel sound or sustained sound. Um, you know, trying to, you know, the, the pervasiveness of vocal tremor in all the tasks or or sometimes the, the consistent hyperfunction in all tasks might, um, you know, support muscle tension dysphonia versus laryngeal dystonia. Are there any other diagnostics you typically consider in working up a patient with SD? You know, not after those two key parts, not, not a lot. I mean, I think... Um, Depending on on your center and, and the interests of of uh, your team or your voice scientist, some some may collect uh, acoustic analysis or acoustic samples. Uh, you know, there's I would contend I don't I don't see much of a role for laryngeal EMG in my own practice uh, for this. I mean, as we'll get into treatment, I use the EMG to help uh, guide my Botox injections, um, and then other other things you know, CT scan, MRI, um, pulmonary function testing. I mean, it would really, for your average patient with laryngeal dystonia, I'm not ordering those things. You know, um, if I think that the patient has vocal tremor, I will sometimes talk with them about a neurology referral, um, particularly if they have extremity and head tremor, because sometimes those, those particular types of movement disorders can be responsive to medical therapy, whereas vocal tremor and, you know, again, laryngeal dystonia don't typically respond to uh, medical therapy. And are there any clinical grading measures or tools that you use for more quantitatively assessing voice quality? Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, you can, um, you can certainly use some of the, the, the tools you may have heard, like of, of the Gerbis uh, you know, with grade and roughness and uh, thinia and strain. Um, the CAPE-V is a tool that uh, can be used. Um, certainly just a visual analog scale of how strained it is, the voice handicap index, um, glottic function index. Um, you know, in our center, we, we use the VHI, and then my speech-language pathology colleague uh, will usually use a CAPE-V, and then we use a sort of a subjective rating um, scale for effectiveness of our treatment. Great. And moving on to treatment options, what are our options for management of SD kind of overall? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say Botox has really been the, laryngeal Botox has really been the primary therapy since the 1980s. Um, you know, voice therapy, you know, typically doesn't improve the voice. You know, if you have a patient with very mild symptoms or, or perhaps a patient who is very um, hesitant to, to pursue Botox, you know, it, it sometimes is, you know, worthwhile to see if voice therapy might help them manage the symptoms, but I, I typically um, recommend laryngeal Botox. Um, I have not, um, you know, again, going into that tremor pathway, 
I will have some patients that may uh, benefit with, um, from a beta blocker for their tremor or uh, primidone or things like that. But I don't typically think of those treatments as uh, useful for our um, patients with laryngeal dystonia. And are there any surgical techniques that uh, are used for spasmodic dysphonia treatment? Yeah, um, there are. And again, it depends on the center and it depends on your training, but there are. There are some very um, interesting surgeries um, um, that have, have been going on, um, you know, really for a while. I mean, if you want to take a trip down memory lane into the history of surgical management of spasmodic dysphonia, you can go back into the 70s where people were um, trying to manage symptoms with recurrent laryngeal nerve sectioning, um, other types of destructive procedures that have um, fallen out of uh, vogue as they, as they should, um, to maybe some more elegant procedures. The the ones that come to mind would be the selective laryngeal denervation and reinnervation. That's the SLAD R, and that's a, a surgery that I, you know, as my understanding, has been designed and sort of popularized by the group at uh, UCLA. Um, and there are surgeons around the country that will will offer that. Um, you know, they they have reported uh, short and long term outcomes with it. It's a a pretty interesting surgery where you use the cervicalis. Um, and you would go and you would make a, you know, like sort of a, a thyrotomy in the lamina of the thyroid cartilage and find the adductor branch. Um, you would divide that and then uh, plug the uh, ANSA to the adductor branch to, to try to re rewire it. And then uh, there's also a little element of um, uh, myectomy in that area for the LCA and um, the TA. Um, and so that that's... Uh, you know, worth looking at, worth worth seeing in some of the textbooks. It's an interesting surgery. Um, uh, some of our Asian colleagues have talked about type two or sort of a widening thyroplasty, and you might hear about this with the with the sound with the with the sort of titanium bridge. Um, and that we haven't, it's not really become that popular in the United States or in North America, but you may hear about this in the in our Asian um, uh, colleagues. And then the same with the thyroid muscle myectomy for, uh, you know, ADSD. And since Botox is the mainstay of therapy for most patients, we'll start there. Um, how do you typically perform Botox for SD and how does the dosing get titrated? For the AD doctor, my, my typical way to do it is to go um, submucosal through the cricothyroid space. But around the country, you will see uh, some variation. Some people will do a touch technique where they don't use the EMG, but they um, are able to go through the cartilage of the thyroid cartilage and be in the muscle. Um, you will have patient, you will have providers that may go fully through the cricothyroid space and use a flexible scope for guidance if they don't have an EMG. Um, and then on the AB ductor side, there, there's really kind of two methods that I'm aware of. Um, one would be to go uh, through the cricothyroid space and then go transcricoid through the two cortexes and into the PCA muscle on the back of the cricoid cartilage. And with that, you'd have a flexible scope in place. You anesthetize the airway and you have the patient sniff. And that sniffing will be unique uh, for the PCA muscle because it should fire. Whereas, you know, in the adductor muscles, they shouldn't fire with sniffing. They should, you know, signal with with phonation. Um, and then you'll also see a lateral approach where in the lateral side of the neck, it's you will rotate the larynx very purposefully and intentionally. You'll 
grab the other side, the contralateral side of the larynx and rotate it open uh, to yourself that on the side you're injecting. And you will take the needle and, and try to find the cricoid in that way. And again, having them sniff. Um, and that's not done with visualization. That rotational technique is just done with EMG alone. There'll be some variation across centers for this. You know, at our center, um, we perform it transcervically. And in my hands, I, I use an EMG to guide me. And I would typically for the adductor compartment would um, go through the cricothyroid uh, space. I try to stay submucosal um, and use the EMG to guide me into the adductor compartment. And, you know, with dosing, again, you'll get variability here. So I, I suspect at most of the voice centers, people will have sort of a starting dose um, that's, that's based on personal experience and maybe some patient characteristics. Um, specifically, if you have an older adult with tremor, you might start with a lower dose just out of concern for some of the short-term dysphagia that patients uh, experience. You know, for me, I, you know, depending on the patient, we might start at, you know, um, a unit and a half and then go up or down depending on the response. But you'll, um, you know, as you look at records around the country, if people are coming in to see your laryngologist, you, you will see a range of dosing and a range of types of uh, dilutions. You know, some people may reconstitute the Botox in a certain way for certain injections in certain muscles. And returning to uh, the surgical versus kind of Botox interventions, how do you typically decide which patients would be good surgical candidates? Yeah, I mean, again, I think there's probably, you know, the most common thing is to, to go with Botox. I would say in, um, you know, North America, in this hemisphere, Botox is you know, the standard treatment. Um you know, doing the surgical interventions are really going to depend on surgeon comfort and probably surgeon training. Um, there are probably just a few centers that, you know, do a lot of selective laryngeal denervation and reinnervation. I am not aware of many centers doing type 2 thyroplasty or TA myectomy for ADSD. And I'm not aware of anybody being offered recurrent laryngeal nerve sectioning. Um, you know, in this era. And so most are going to be offered uh, Botox. And, um, you know, there are some patients that, that simply really struggle to, to get to their Botox injections. There's many determinants that make it difficult, work, travel, distance to your center. Um, and so that might be a patient that pushes you for a surgical option. And, um, and, and I think that's very reasonable. Um, you know, um, you know, I, you want to also caution too that, you know, while some of the results for the selective uh, denervation and reinnervation are really promising and excellent, there are still a, a, a group of those patients that still will have return of spasm or maybe a little breathy after uh, the procedure. And so um, I tried to counsel patients that while we certainly want to just cure it, um, it, it, you know, as it is a neurologic condition, sometimes there can be recurrent symptoms even after, you know, what would be a, a short-term successful surgery over the first year or two. And how should we counsel patients on their expected voice outcomes and the duration of treatment after a Botox or other therapeutic intervention? Yeah. I, I, I typically tell people to expect, 
you know, the need for an injection every three or four months. There's, there's always some patients that can go longer and there's some patients that seem to go shorter. Um, it depends on what their insurance and, you know, payer will allow. Sometimes uh, patients will get more frequent injections at a lower dose um, just simply because, you know, sometimes the side effects of Botox can linger for three weeks or, or longer. And if you have a person who has a lot of speaking with their job, you know, those, that can be really difficult, um, to be breathy and, um, you know, you're kind of trading one problem for another while you're waiting for the Botox effect to stabilize. Um, I, I tell, you know, every time we see patients, I mean, we, um, we're very open to changing doses, um, you know, if, if side effects are a problem, we'll go down in the dose. Well, you know, we really try to have an exchange of uh, feedback on effectiveness and, and a willingness to uh, personalize treatment for patients. Um, you know, I'd, I'd also, you know, comment to the listener that there, there actually is an approach um, that's been written about uh, where you inject the false vocal folds with Botox for adductor spasmodic dysphonia. And and those patients are typically the patients that have a lot of breathy side effects or dysphagia with a traditional technique, but seem to have um, a softer onset of benefit um, with a false vocal cord approach. So that's sometimes something that, that we will do if somebody's having a hard time or we're just really going down and down and down on the dose, but not escaping the side effects. We might, we might try the false cords. Um, you know, changing gears to the abductor type of spasmodic dysphonia, I think overall this is this is harder. These are harder conversations. I I do think that the outcomes for ABSD are are worse. I think it's harder, uh, mostly because you have only one muscle to target, and and some discomfort with botoxing the the only muscle that is responsible for abduction in the larynx, and so. Um, Oftentimes you might be doing a staggered approach where you inject one side and then look and inject another side, you know, six weeks later, it's a little more time consuming for the patient. Um, there are some patients that, that will get bilateral PCA injections, but I, I wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, for the listener recommend starting with that. I think you, that's something that you would, you know, kind of determine over time. You usually it'd start on one side and then see them back and maybe do the other. Um, it's harder to titrate dosing for abductor, I would say. Um, so, yeah, I think just in general, the adductor type is more predictable and um, they tend to respond very well, whereas the abductor might be a little bit more challenging. And what complications or adverse events can arise from these therapies that we should keep in mind? Yeah, it's really the breathy voice and uh, the, it's usually thin liquid dysphagia. And, um, and, you know, I think just trying to reinforce to the patient that those side effects are pretty much expected, right? It's just a matter of how long they last before the, the good voice comes out. And, and so I, I, in my own practice, I try to keep that side effect time to two weeks or less. But when you have a, a voice user who has demands at work and this and that, you want to be sensitive and, and understand how they use their voice every day so they can be prepared, um, you know, for that sort of, you know, onset period. Um, you know, some of the less common complications, you know, like the, the uh, antibody development, I think that's very rare. Um, you know, that's usually in the patient who's been getting treated for years and years and then all of a sudden doesn't really respond uh, to typical treatments and doses. 
And so you could, there's a, several strains of Botox. So there's Botox A, Botox B, and then there's a, there's a, like a related one um, that's called uh, Zeomen that, um, that you can use. But um, yeah, I mean, those are, you know, when you think about complications, there's not, there's not too many. I mean, um, but uh, there can be side effects after Botox that can linger. And how frequently do you see these patients for follow-up and kind of secondarily, how long do you typically follow these patients? Yeah. I mean, these are, these are people that you'll get to care for really over the course of their lives. I mean, I, I've been here um, in my practice in Cleveland for about 13 years and I have patients I've been treating for, you know, almost that long. And so it is, they are people that you will see, and it's, it's an interesting way that the years pass by in practice if you, if you provide this uh, type of care. But yeah, it's really, um, you know, for life or for a very long time, unless they move or, you know, decide they don't want treatment anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, those are all the questions I had for you, Dr. Bryson. Uh, before we move on to the summary and question section, is there anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, I would just I would just say it, it, these aren't always straightforward, and I think as you move through your training journey and even into your practice, uh, whatever it may be, if certainly these patients will come through in a comprehensive practice, um, and I think just you know being patient and 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 trying to let yourself get your ear trained up for this, you can really make a difference for these patients. Um, they're very grateful; they get back to good function, and you know being able to treat them uh, can be quite satisfying and. Um, and fun, you know, because it is a procedure and, and you, you can get a very nice, you know, improvement in quality of life. Um, and like I said earlier, not all of these are easy. And so I think having a colleague, you know, phoning a friend or, or having a speech language pathologist that might have experience in this, have a listen or evaluate the patient, I think is very helpful. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still seeing and learning as I, as I go along too. So um, yeah, I would, I would just, say, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a little bit of time, but you know, there's more and more resources out there where you can listen to voice samples. And I think that's very helpful as you hone your diagnostic ear. Well, thank you so much for teaching us today. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on the podcast and uh, I wanted to say thanks and just congratulations for what a great sort of enduring um, uh, body of work you've uh, been able to put together for uh, your colleagues around the country. Thank you so much. To briefly summarize, spasmodic dysphonia is an idiopathic, task-specific, focal laryngeal dystonia. It affects predominantly women, and while many patients report onset after a hypersensitization event, and a number of possible genetic contributors have been associated with laryngeal dystonias at large, a causative etiology has yet to be elucidated. We broadly divide spasmodic dysphonia into adductor and abductor type based upon which vocal tasks elicit vocal spasm, and this is diagnosed by history and physical exam, specifically eliciting spasm during laryngoscopy. While a number of medical and surgical treatments have been proposed for the treatment of spasmodic dysphonia, the vast majority of patients are treated with intermittent botulinum toxin injection. As always, we'll end with a few review questions. I'll ask the question, pause to give you time to answer or pause the podcast, and then give the answer. First off, describe the adductor spasmodic dysphonia presentation, triggers, and the muscles targeted in therapy. 
Spasmodic dysphonia is broken down into adductor type, which comprises about 85 to 90% of patients, and the abductor type, which comprises about 12% of patients. Adductor spasmodic dysphonia results from spasm of the thyroretinoid and lateral cricoretinoid muscles and presents with a strangulated vocal quality with voiced vowels like an E. This can be elicited in clinic with vocal tasks like saying, we eat eggs every Easter, or counting from 80 to 89, and is treated with Botox in the bilateral thyroid muscles. Conversely, describe abductor spasmodic dysphonia presentation, triggers, and muscles targeted in therapy. Abductor spasmodic dysphonia stems from posterior cricoarytenoid dysfunction, resulting in breathy or effortful quality with voice breaks or voiceless consonants, like H or S sounds. This can be elicited in clinic with vocal tasks like saying Harry's happy hat or counting from 60 to 69 and is treated with unilateral Botox into the PCA muscle. Remember, bilateral posterior cricoarytenoid injection could result in poor vocal fold abduction bilaterally, leading to airway obstruction. We should also note that some patient ha patients have mixed AB and AD ductor spasmodic dysphonia, though the estimated proportion of uh, SD patients with true mixed spasmodic dysphonia is less than 1%. And finally, what other techniques have been described for the treatment of spasmodic dysphonia besides Botox injection? Recurrent laryngeal nerve sectioning, selective laryngeal denervation reinnervation, type 2 thyroplasty, and thyroretinoid myomectomy have been described for the surgical treatment of spasmodic dysphonia. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.